Well, I love how God weaves together worship and prayers and even sharing of what God's doing outside these walls uh, in your life and through your life. Um, but just, I think the two themes of God's goodness and faithfulness, I hope if you don't hear anything I say, you kind of zone out. I hope that he hits your heart with just how good and faithful he is. Um, and, and I love to use the expression on his goodness that um, God encourages me with when he gives uh, tangible kindnesses. When you see little glimpses of, or when you see long-term, um, you look in the, you know, in the rearview mirror that long-term God had been good and faithful and kind all along. Um, and just two things I want to give thanks for in God's goodness, tangible things. One, I want to say thanks to, to Tim and Kay Chastain. Um, they hosted our first young adults um, house to house, which is where we get together and we have supper together. And then we have a time of worship and prayer. And uh, we did that this past Sunday, um, and it was just, it was awesome. And so um, know that um, we're going to be doing that once a month. The, the young adults are meeting every Sunday night. We're going through Second Timothy, just like the men are. Uh, and it's my privilege to be uh, with them and, 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 and learning from them, but also just helping us track through that. And we have a great group uh, of young adults that are, um, mostly 20-somethings, maybe edging into 30, but who have a, a hunger to know God and His Word and for Him to be known elsewhere. And I get a little choked up even just telling you that. I wasn't planning on that. Um, those who know me are laughing at me now. Um, but I would also say that, that they're living, breathing answers to my prayers that God would bring uh, a, a whole new covey or herd, or whatever we want to call them, of young adults, and that God would um, would enable us uh, to be a church that loves on them and then gets loved by them, and and so just awesome time of worship. We enjoyed them, so I'm thankful for the the Chastains. And then this is just for me personally. Uh, I think I've shared about my friend Cole, but he uh, pastored the church I grew up in for almost 20 years, and um, it was. Uh, about a year ago, March, that he stepped down, and he has uh, been just waiting. And while many, not only in your industry, but even in the clergy world, are part of the great resignation, quitting, pastors are quitting by the hundreds at a time, my friend was looking. Uh, he knew that it was time to move on from that. Uh, he knew they needed somebody new, etc. But I just sent him a text last night and heard back from him this morning, and um, he, about a year from the day that, uh, and what I'll tell you, he'll, he'll be okay, I'll share this, he accidentally resigned from the pulpit. Uh, a year from that day, it, it came out later, you know, further, but um, he, uh, a year from that day, then he got the church at the, the, excuse me, he preached at the church that he is now the new lead pastor of. Today's his first Sunday. And um, I share that with you because I think of our passage today, Sometimes is it just like, you know what, I think I'm just going to bail on God because I don't see him coming through. And that's a temptation for us. And so um, he's an example of when we talk about, we'll hit it especially next week, that the key to enduring in the Christian life is entrusting again and again and trusting myself and trusting my life and trusting my circumstances into the hands of a God who not only is capable but is caring. So I want to ask God to bless our time 
in First Peter, and let's go to him, the one who is kind and good and faithful. Lord, we say that again. And thank you that part of your faithfulness and goodness is that you have provided your word. We, we prayed that prayer that where your will crosses ours, that you'd give us the trust and, and the um, receptivity to say, okay, I'll bend to your will or I will receive your will, even if I can't see how in the world it makes sense. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this section of First Peter, when we hit pain, when we hit confusion, that causes us to wince, and it also causes us to second-guess ourselves or second-guess you. And so we pray, Father, that you might help us to see you rightly, that you might find us receptive and attentive, and that you might find us uh, then at the ready to live out, but only by your Spirit's power, live out what you've put in front of us today. Confront us with your word, comfort, it, comfort us if we need it, challenge us if we need it. And thank you that you are pleased to meet with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I would submit to you that many of us in our Christian lives, we go through seasons where we hit kind of the doldrums. We're bored, or a lot of us now, I think especially, it's, it's more frequent, these seasons we hit, where we're just disenchanted. Um, I've said for the last decade or more that, that our default mode is in the background. It's always running a mild, and I think it's an increasing level of discontent that we go through each day, discontent. Or we just say, man, the Christian life, I just don't know if it's really getting there. I'm just bored with it. And I would submit to you that that's often because whether we started out that way or not, or maybe we did start out that way, that we've We've made the Christian life about more about a project than a person. I start out that way because there's a danger in what I'm going to say. I'm going to give you my theme right up front, but there's a danger as I say it that you go, okay, I got to bootstrap it a little bit more, and I got to get busier, and I got to try harder, okay? That's what could be a danger of you hearing, but I actually want you to see that the invitation is not to a project. It's not to a performance course but it still is again and again to the very person who is the one who's given us life and who is our life, Jesus Christ. And what my theme is, is to resolve to live for the will of God, no matter the cost, no matter your past, and no matter the crowd. Uh, or you could say it this way, live resolutely for the will of God, no matter the cost, no matter your past, and no matter the crowd. And I'm not going to read a, a, a lot of them, but just give you a smattering. We already did Valley of Vision. We might as well read a little Jonathan Edwards. We're going to feel really learned or really stupid by the time we leave. But Jonathan Edwards has lots and lots of resolutions. I don't know the story. I would assume that there, were, there was a time where he said, I'm going to sit down and write down what I'm resolved to be about in following my Lord and representing Him. And then probably, as life happens, that gets tempered and refined a little bit, and you add some, okay? But I'll just read a couple. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration, meaning my whole life, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence, 
resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever and how great soever. There's one that kind of fits our theme today. If you could hear some of that in the language. Uh, Here's another one. Resolve to never lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. You're also going to hear that in the first Peter passage, that there are elements of timing to what God is going to encourage us in terms of living resolutely. There's timing involved. Then he says, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. There's another timing one. And then resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Now, that's a pretty wake-you-up kind of deal. If it was the life, this is the last hour of your life, if it's the last hour of my life, how are we living? Going back to what I started with, I believe that many of us are bored, disenchanted, disillusioned, discontent with life or the Christian life because we've made it more about a project than a person. So, as I say, live resolutely for the will of God— I'm going to try to unpack for us. There is some diligence. There is some effort. There is some oomph. There is some, let's have some intentionality and resoluteness. But again, it's got to go back to the person that we are devoting our lives to and his worth and then who he has made us to be uh, as his followers. If you'd stand in honor of God and his word, we're going to read 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6. If you have a copy of God's word, 1 Peter 4. It'll also be on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Well, you see there our theme uh, and our, yeah, our theme for this series that we're calling Surprising, Not Surprised. Next week, 412 to 19, we'll for sure see the not surprised. It says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you. All throughout 1 Peter, if you've not been with us, one of the themes throughout 1 Peter is stewarding your suffering, that suffering is part of the reality of following Christ. We saw last week, Peter was even alluding to Matthew 5, when in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, hey, you want to name the name? You're going to be persecuted, but don't worry, you're in good company because they, they did that with the prophets before you. But realize if you're going to follow me and you're aligned with me, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard and particularly in First Peter, we'll, we'll re-mention it in a, in a moment, but it's because he wants to know. He's writing to scattered people, 
He's saying, you are resident aliens. You are elect exiles. You are those who are in a place that is not your home. So you don't have the comforts of home. You don't share the same values of that place. And you can expect, not be surprised, that it's going to be rough at times. You will face opposition at times. But this passage actually gives us the first part of our series title, Surprising that God intends where he's located you and me as his representatives and ambassadors for Christ, that we would actually be a surprise. That how you and I live our lives, how you and I go about our work, how you and I deal with conflict, whether or not we have a standard of forgiveness that's like the world's or something they haven't seen, is to be surprising. He says, they are surprised. And that's exactly what God has designed the Christian life to be. And so our theme, resolve to live for the will of God, it's twice here. It's also in next week's passage, the will of God is shot through. First Peter, when we hear will of God, we immediately go to do's and don'ts and all that I, the do's I shouldn't be, I haven't been doing and all the don'ts I kind of haven't avoided and I've been doing, right? And we get Caught in that cycle of thinking that I just need to perform better, try harder. That's not what I mean when I say live resolutely or resolve to live for the will of God, no matter the cost. The will of God, it's lots of things, but particularly it's this, it's his desire for his name to be glorified, for his the bride of Christ to be beautified and on display, displaying the gospel. And he has plans from eternity past that he's put in place, and we get to be part of that. So I'm, I'm, I'll stop there. But by what I don't mean by the will of God, sometimes we hear will of God and we think, who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to go to college? And what job should I take? And we think of that. There is no chapter and verse for that. And yet we know that God has a will for our lives. We know that God has desires and designs for our life. But it's also not a legalistic, check these boxes and you're good. Particularly his will, Jesus was saying, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Or he appointed 12 that they might be with him in relationship and he might send them out. Okay, and so we're to resolve to live for the will of God first first point in it is no matter the cost. Look again at verse 1. He says, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with that same purpose, because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And, and I think maybe a better way of saying it, it's not that you no longer sin, it's that you are through with sin. You're through with sin is that which is going to govern you that you are now saying, I'm going to follow you, Lord. And as part of that following, I'm going to be through with sin calling the shots in my life. I'm going to be through with following my nerve impulses, my nerve endings, my impulses that lead to becoming compulsions. Because sin is no longer going to be dominant. And the only way that's true is in Romans, we're told, that apart from, from Christ, we are dead the only thing we can do is follow our nerve endings and impulses and not obey him. But now in Christ, we can actually obey. But again, not just checking boxes. In Romans 6, he talks about obedience from the heart. 
that he's given us a new heart, that he's given us the desire to, to say no to sin governing us, and we're going to follow him. He now, because we have his spirit, we now have the power over sin present time when we uh, avail ourselves of the power available to us. So resolve to, to live for the will of God no matter the cost because Christ has suffered in the flesh. Look back up at verse 18. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Verse 22, who is at the right hand, because he rose from the dead, he's at the right hand of God, having gone in the heavens after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Therefore, so he's not done. Christ is the example for us of suffering for doing what is right, being willing to suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is wrong. That's what 3, 13 through 22 is mostly hitting on. And he says, Jesus is your prime example. Now, he's not just our example because apart from him dying for us, we have no ability to do what is right. But because he did, he's still the example for us of one who suffered willingly no matter the cost. And what did it cost him? It cost him his life. It cost him being mocked, betrayed. He knew that all along. And yet he went to the cross. Really what he's saying is, come to the place, believer, you're in Christ, that no matter what it costs you, you will remain aligned with him. You will seek to grow, uh, to be more and more aligned with him and his purposes, no matter what it costs you. If it costs you a job, if it costs you a relationship, if it costs you, you know, kind of reputation with the boys or the girls, whatever the cost, resolve that it'll be, you'll be about the will of God and no longer for the lust of uh, of the flesh, the lust of men that we all have, but then they get out of whack. They get out of order. He says, don't live that way. We're going to talk about that in a minute, the no longer part. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, you resolve to live for the will of God, no longer for those things, but following Christ's example, being willing to have, and some of your translations say, um, Arm yourselves with this purpose. Some of you say, arm yourself with this mindset. Some of you say, arm yourself with this attitude or thinking. Those are all good because that's what he's saying. Believer in Jesus Christ, bored because you've made it about do's and don'ts. He's the one you follow. He's the one you align with. He was willing to be faithful and obedient to God no matter the cost. Now you aligning with him have that same mindset. Have that same, and it, and it is a, directional turning in the direction so now my yes is this way so i'm saying no to these things and it's a resolve of direction and movement with him having his mindset i'm going to go through very fast what is the mindset of christ that we get from other passages philippians 2 it's on the screen have this attitude or mindset in yourselves which is also in christ jesus although he exists in the form of god he did not regard equality with god a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. His obedience didn't hit a ceiling. It was even to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So we're to have, when he says arm yourselves with this purpose, he's saying arm yourselves with the mindset that Christ had. And this is a rich picture of that. It's also a gruesome picture that it cost him all that it cost him, even death on a, a humiliating death on a cross. Hebrews 12, we also see this. He didn't just grit his teeth, because Hebrews 12, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside. We have a mindset that we're going to be resolved to live for the will of God. Lay aside every um, encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. How do we do that? Next verse. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for gritting his teeth so he could do what God wanted, did it. No, who for the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross. The cross is a cost. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We talked about this last week. You only sit down as a priest when your work is finished. Jesus except for when Stephen was martyred that we know of. That's when he stood up. But he's seated at the right hand. That's a place of honor and blessing and reward. And he is returning. Verse 3, for consider him. Have that mindset, but keep considering. What cost did Jesus go through? Who is he, this one I'm following? Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. A couple more. Mark 8. This is huge in Peter's life. We'll come back to it at the end. It says that Jesus continued by questioning them. Who do you say that I am to his disciples? Peter answered, you're the Christ. And he warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then next slide, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Those are costs. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Next verse. And Peter who had the right answer, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Why? Because what Jesus plainly stated were the cost that he was going to have to go through. And this didn't fit Peter's categories nor comfort level. And he rebuked, I mean, it's, it's so ironic. He rebukes Jesus for telling them what plainly is God's plan for him and that he embraces wholeheartedly. But Jesus, turning around and seeing his disciples, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man. That phrase right there is what Peter's saying. Arm yourselves, not for the interest of self or the interest of man or the interest that you used to have or should be in the used to have category. Set your interest on God's interest. And we are going to buck up against this until you are 178 and about to die. There's going to be some area of my life that I want to write the script for, that I want to have the outcome I want to have, and if he's not letting me have it, I'm going to be rebuking him or ignoring him. Peter's saying, resolve. Let it be a considering of the one who purchased you with his blood, let it be uh, considering him who has given his life for you and invited you to have life and life to the full and you're aligning with. Let him have such a say that you say, I'm resolved. You're going that way, I will follow. And no matter the cost to me, no matter the cost to my comfort, no matter the, 
shaking of my categories, I will follow. The last one, we just get, it's very um, plain in Luke 9.51. This begins the rest of Luke's gospel. It says in Luke 9.51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, it wasn't like a few days, but it was like he's now moving that direction. It says that Jesus resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. I love that. Some of yours say uh, he's, he, he set his face like flint. I don't really know what that means, so I like this one. <laughs> but he resolutely set his face. It's a direction. Did he go immediately there? No, he still zigzagged. But it's the idea of the heart set and the mindset is that's where my destination is. That's where my purpose is, is, is going to be to lay my life down. I'm going no matter the cost. And that's to be how we are to live, to resolve to live for the will of God, no matter the cost. And it's going to involve suffering. It will. Now, I want to say this. We're not to go look for suffering. And we said last week, if we're suffering for doing wrong or being jerks, then we should suffer. But it is par for the course. It is reality. But I want to say this. Suffering doesn't automatically benefit you. Like the no pain, no gain. Like, that's a truism. Things where there's going to be gain, it's probably going to involve pain. It's probably going to involve uh, discomfort. It's probably going to be involving, because I'm saying yes to this, I say no to this. Okay, but suffering can also make me bitter. It can also make me angry, revengeful, self-indulgent. And I can only live, you can only live for God's will in the midst of suffering when I arm myself with the truth of Christ that he, as a person, laid his life down for me in order to free me to no longer live for myself, but resolutely for his purposes and his glory. I love it in 2 Corinthians, Paul, when he's describing where we get ambassador concept from, but he says that basically because of what Christ has done, now people no longer live for themselves. Is that true of you and me? And maybe a better way to ask it, because I know we still bump up against it. Where is it not true for you and me? Where is there still a pocket of living for yourself that you're like, I will hold on to this? Because suffering is going to be par for the course. Living for God's will will mean affliction, difficulty. But am I willing to live resolutely for that? no matter the cost. The second suffering to hurdle is that we're to live resolutely for God's will no matter your past. Look at verses 2 through 3. <clears throat> he says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. We're to live for the will of God no matter the cost to us. We're to live for the will of God no matter your past. And some of us in here, God doesn't look at it this way, but some of us in here are like, I don't just have like a skeleton or two in my closet. I have like a graveyard of skeletons in my closet. Well, God knows that already. But that can be a very, the very thing that our enemy would love to continue to chip away at you. This is why you're not worthy. This is why God wouldn't use you, couldn't use you, doesn't want to use you. I mean, what's the point of living resolutely for God's will because you're going to just mess it up again? 
And God wants you to begin to arm yourself with the truth of Christ died for every sin before you ever committed it. And he didn't die for you because you were somewhat clean. He died for you and me because we needed him to. He died for sinners. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, which includes me. So we're to resolutely live for the will of God, arm ourselves with that kind of mindset purpose, no matter our past. I want to point out two timing words here. The first is the rest of the time. He says, um, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer. The rest of the time is saying time is brief, it's precious. It also implies, though, if you're young, the rest of your time. Or if you're older and you've squandered your youth or you've checked out in your relationship with God, that from wherever you are, this is the rest of your time. This is the rest of your time that by grace, God says, will spend the rest of your time well and wisely to bring honor to my name because of who I am to you. Spend it wisely. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, Paul says this to the church at Ephesus, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, or literally it's redeem the time, redeem the season you're in, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish. There it is again, the will of the Lord. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The rest of the time. Then he says another one, another timing word is no longer. Spend your, the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men. This is because there's been a change. You can go to the next slide. You are no longer who you once were. A butterfly did transform from a caterpillar, but they say that you can almost not even recognize the caterpillar in the butterfly. And the altitude that a butterfly and a caterpillar get is different, and the way they, the way they look is different. Everything is transformed, and that's the picture for you and for me that, that God is at work, that he is he has made us a new creation, which we'll read in just a second. And he's continually transforming us to be more and more like his son, Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians, uh, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus or in this way no longer. There's another no longer. Next slide. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you are in Christ, no matter what your past, you are a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. Do you still have residual consequences of your previous life? Absolutely. Do you still have temptation? It's not like you're like, hey, I'm invincible. I have no temptation. No. But you are different there has been a transformation. Because you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, new things have come. And he says, in fact, no matter your, you've got, you may have skeletons in your closet or patterns woven into your lifestyle, but you're a new creation. And God wants to transform you to where 
he brings you up potentially sometimes against suffering or discipline so he can chisel away, so he can prune away because he wants you to grow. He wants you to be fruitful. He'll allow a hard time at times because he loves you, because he's the vine dresser who knows what it would look like for my life and your life to be to the full and to be fruitful, and sometimes that will be pain. He says, in fact, another time phrase, the time past has been sufficient for you to have carried out all these things, and he, and he basically mentions a frat party lifestyle. He's like, there's drinking and uh, carousing, and those are things, he said, you, that time has passed. You had enough time to carry that out. When he says, um, you know, these things the, of the Gentiles, when he says the desire of the Gentiles, he's just meaning those who don't know God. He says though, there are those who go after um, their nerve endings the way the world would tell them to. And they are, back in the 80s, they're beer commercial living. And they're saying that's where life is found. But he says carried out. The, the word there uh, means wrought, or it means worked for or toward. It means that that's the life you had. You're no longer that. But those folks and yourself along with them, you put some intensity into that lifestyle. You put some, some oomph into that lifestyle. You probably threw a lot of coin toward that lifestyle. You probably ruined some friendships or dating relationships or marriages because of that lifestyle. You put work into it. You lived for it. He says, but that's no longer... You no longer have to live that way. You're a new creation. I would say that our world offers uh, one way of going about life, and we offer an alternative one. And particularly the way of the world, um, they're also looking for that sense of peace, that sense of getting my life together, that sense of satisfaction. There, But theirs is based off a of misdiagnosis. They would say, potentially many of them, well, there's no such thing as sin, or I don't believe, you know, what the Bible says about all of us have sinned. And they'll just say, well, I just haven't reached my, you know, my great self-expression. And that is the, the language of our day. But it's a misdiagnosis. I have a friend, Fred, some of you know him, um, was part of our church um, for several years, and he got a misdiagnosis. He was having some issues. And so they put a pacemaker in him, and it kind of calmed for a couple weeks, and then it started getting worse. And he did something, I'm, by the way, you don't do this, but he was actually right on this. He went and self-diagnosed on the internet, and he figured out that he didn't need a pacemaker. He had an issue with his adrenal gland. And so what needed to happen was, and he did have it, a surgery to remove that that was causing the problem. But it all started because of a misdiagnosis. And I would say our world is offering lots of things, and there's lots of allure to it. And we as Christians can be tempted because we're bored, disillusioned, disenchanted, life is hard, etc. But if we don't have the mindset of Christ, if we don't have the mindset that, as we've sung, that God is good, then we can come to a place where we're like, well, maybe God's holding a little bit behind his back from me. Maybe I should go that route. Maybe I would get what I'm looking for there. But know that the world's offerings are based on a misdiagnosis. The best thing we can do 
is to actually have an accurate diagnosis, which is, apart from Christ, we are without hope, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the wages, the paycheck we should pick up because of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That apart from that relationship, we are going to clamor and grope, and we will never get it. He says, you no longer have to do that, though you used to. This world, the crowd, your neighbors, co-workers, they live that way because they're not armed with ultimate reality. They're treating the problem based on a bad diagnosis. And we are tempted to continue, whether it's frat party life for you or um, the, you know, busy, 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 because maybe if I'm just busy enough, I'll really get there. Life, we're tempted to continue that. We will be tempted to, um, to go that way if we only see God's commands as purposeless duties, as a project, which is all the crowd sees that the Christian life, that, that's all the way they see our Christian life as, which brings us to the third suffering to hurdle. If we're to live resolutely for God's will, not only no matter the cost, no matter your past, but no matter the crowd, verses 4 to 6. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. No matter the crowd. I'll give you two responses from the crowd, one reality. Two responses is, first of all, they're surprised. We already were talking about, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. They're surprised. They think it's foreign. They think you're weird. And Peter would say, if that's the surprise they're having, we're getting closer to what God intends for us as those who would represent Christ as his ambassadors. So we are. In fact, Peter calls us elsewhere, strangers and aliens. And he says, yep, that should be the way it is. And he says, they're surprised that you do not run with them. That word means to run with a crowd or a mob. It's, it's interesting, as sophisticated as we are nowadays, how much more of a mob mentality seems to be rampant. And it could be an online mob. It could be a mob that shows up somewhere. But all of a sudden, it's like we're all back in junior high even though we're adults. And we get lathered up and, and, you know, we live in a culture of outrage. And part of that outrage comes from non-believers are surprised by Christians and what we believe, what we know of God. But look, they're not surprised that we have desires like them, desires to do work well, Desires, desires for recognition, for relationship, for sex, for enjoying um, food. They're not surprised by that. God gave desires, uh, those desires to all of us. What they are surprised by is that we don't go the route of excess with them. We don't go the route of making life all about whatever that is. And all of us have some area even as believers, that's kind of like, yep, that's the thing that's a magnet for me. I loved in the line in the prayer, like this is, a, this is my magnet, God and his goodness and faithfulness. But we can forget that. 
Our life as believers should be a distinctiveness that surprises, that we're no longer living like we did in our seedier days, or if you didn't have seedier days, self-righteous days, because they're both the same, just different shades of sin, if you will. They're surprised you no longer run with them in those. It's the restraint that they see in us. It's the that thing doesn't govern me. We're not going around trumpeting that. It's the way we live that says that. It's the restraint. And they would say, well, man, don't, get, don't give me that God stuff. Don't give me the Bible stuff. That's all about, you know, cramping my style. That's not freedom. I think we should be free. Uh, listening to Brian LaRitz, uh, pastor now in North Carolina, and he gave a perfect illustration of this. Tragically, we actually had a real-life situation of this in the last couple of months. But he said, you know, everybody who says, oh, man, I don't want my lifestyle to be cramped and this whole God stuff, that's going to make life boring and whatever. I want freedom. I'm, I should be free to do whatever I want. He says, well, you, if you go and ride a roller coaster, a real steep roller coaster, and you say, I want to be free. I want no restraints on me. And you get in, and they don't put that thing on you, especially the steeper and the flippier it is. He says, all of a sudden, what you thought was your entitlement to all freedom and enjoyment of whatever you want, you're not going to enjoy that ride. It's going to be a terror, and it's going to lead to ruin. You know, the Proverbs say that there's a way that seems right to man or to our world, but its end is destruction. And it's a false. Let me just talk to, to elementary, junior high, high school. It's a falsehood to say that the only way life is free is when there are no rules. That's a falsehood. It's a deception. Bound, God's boundaries for us, even if we don't understand them. He says, take me at my word, and you'll know life and life to the full when you live within them. Interestingly, in Genesis, if we think God's a killjoy, he only gave one command, and we couldn't keep that. They had all kinds of freedom. But they said, nope, I'm going to govern myself. I'm not going to live for the will of God, meaning he gets to call the shots. I'm going to call the shots. And it sounds like you're free, but you're not. Because that roller coaster ride, if you don't have that restraint, it is no fun, it's not free, and it will lead to tragic, tragic damage and things in your wake that are ruinous. So the question would be, are we a surprise to the crowd, to our old running buddies? Because the other side, too, you'll know if you are a surprise, is when they malign you. Now, some of you, you experience this every Thanksgiving or Christmas. You're at the family table. It's not like your people at work that malign you for being a Christian. It's your aunt or uncle or brother or sister, and they malign you, as they say, past the cranberry sauce, which they should not say because you shouldn't have that. It's not, it, I malign you for having, no. I actually like cranberries. I don't like the sauce. Anyway, but they malign us. Why? Well, because our own way of living exposes what they're about. Now, not because we're looking to, but if you and I live in following Christ, he says, you align with me, you're going to live a certain way. It will stand out, and it will stand out and sometimes shine a light on those who live for themselves, those, those who live for the next jolt, the next high, the next whatever. He says, and, and they're going to turn and malign you. They're going to judge you, basically. But God's going to take away that gavel, which is the last two verses, because it turns out that they can pound it, but they have no backing. 
but there is one to whom they will give an account or any of us who have not trusted Christ and his finished work for us. So my question is, if you're not a surprise to anyone, is it either because you're not living fully for God's will enough to be distinct, to be astonishing, or is it that you're trying to do so, but you're not really ever doing so within close proximity of anyone who doesn't know Christ? Because if you're never surprising anyone, if you're never stark contrast just with your life, again, not self-righteous, then are you, are you not in close proximity with those who don't name the name of Christ? Because God would say, I put each of you here to represent me and radiate Christ among those who don't know me yet. So I want to close with this, and we'll bring the worship team back up. No matter the cost, no matter the past, no matter the crowd, you go back to verse 1. We don't resolve to live for the will of God by pulling up our bootstraps and trying harder. But because of verse 1 says, therefore, and he's saying therefore, and he's going back to Jesus dying, suffering in the flesh for sins on the cross. He is the one. We've got to arm ourselves with the truth of who he is and who we are in him. so that we can live the life that he has called us to. That, therefore, is gigantic. Otherwise, I'm going, look at me, I can check boxes, I can soldier on. He says, no, it's because of the one who redeemed you and because of his work in you, continual work to do in you, that through you, you Christ could be radiated. But see, we don't want that. We don't want life to be difficult. We don't want life to have cost. Um, we get really nervous if we seem like we're too, too good for others. And so we're like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to live too sharply in distinction. Or we just say, you know, I, the crowd, it's I just the pressure's hard. And it is. We all want to be liked. But because of what Christ has done, We can arm ourselves with that truth so that we can live in ways that are resolute in representing him. I'm going to, we're going to sing. We can only do that through his working through us. We're going to sing and then I'm going to make a few comments and send us out.
sitting down with some of you are like, yeah, I hadn't really been very resolved lately. I kind of been back with my running buddies or at least just kind of dabbling over here. I could see Peter much, much more comfortably sitting across the table from me. And in tears, sharing what we already read in Mark 8, man, you don't get it. Like I, I rebuked Jesus. <laughs> um, and then when Jesus in the upper room, he said, Satan's asked permission to sift you like wheat. He goes, all you guys are going to scatter. And Peter resolutely, but in his own strength, said, everybody else will bail on you, Lord, but not me. He says, well, Peter, I have prayed for you. And when you turn again, I want you to strengthen your brothers, but you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. I bet every time Peter shared with somebody, he wasn't preaching at him. So let me tell you about my failures and let me tell you about my gracious Savior, my good shepherd. So much so that he, when he was risen from the dead, that Peter said, you can put me in jail, do whatever you want. He says, but I'm going to obey God rather than men. And that was so infectious that the community, when they got released again from an arrest, they gathered together and they gave praise and were rejoicing that God considered them worthy to suffer for his name. And there was a guy that I was on the phone with yesterday who had his own failures and had a privilege and opportunity years back to sit on his back porch 
interior say. I'm not here to preach at you, just here to be with you. His marriage was in a really rough place. But that God called me yesterday because God did a redemptive work in him years ago when he was like, you know what, I'm just done. And he drove down yesterday to be with a friend of ours whose marriage is struggling. See, he could have said, you know what? I blew it in my marriage and this and that. God would never use me. God just doesn't say, just get aligned with my will. He says, I'm at work in your life and I still want to use you. You just got to respond to my grace and trust me. And so this friend went and he said, sat across from me. The guy knew why he was coming. He said, I don't, you know, you may not want me to be here, but I just want you to know, I just wanted to be here with you. I don't have anything to preach at you. But he said, but I can tell you, I was running my own way and I was like, I was convinced the only way that my life can work out the way it should is if I just go my own way. He said, but at some point, God got a hold of me and I said, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna trust. I don't have much in the tank. <laughs> I'm gonna surrender to you. And he said, I can tell you in my own life because you do with this what you want, but in obeying God with what he wants, there's blessing, there's a ripple effect. He goes, are there still consequences? Yes, absolutely. But his grace is sufficient. And some of you need to hear that today. Don't hear a bunch of stuff, but hear Peter in tears saying, man, I failed a lot. Christ is so gracious. I just want you to go in that word that he's gentle and humble in heart. He invites you to find rest, not requirements, in following him. Have a great week. Thank you.